I don't try and force anything. I've literally said to myself at times, Paul, are you painting? I hope not, because if you're painting, you just you got to stop because you're you have to let the painting happen. Don't try and paint it in any sort of overt way. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but you can, with your ego, you can interrupt the flow of your work if you're not tuned into sort of the universe. And if you just try and do it on your own without being in the flow, it's not going to be the same. Hi, and welcome to Embark. I'm Liz Solar. Today, we're going to take time for some art appreciation. Specifically, we're going to take a moment and appreciate the work of Paul Padula. Paul's art feels like a meditation of space and environment. His style is minimal and often features an open stretch of asphalt road against a bright blue sky, a row of summer houses near the sea. Sea and sky is really big with Paul. His work is quite striking and has been featured in Artscope magazine, Boston Voyager, the Boston Globe, and many other publications and blogs. His work has been part of many juried exhibits and has been singled out by art professionals, educators, and interior designers from Seattle to New England. Paul's paintings can be found in collectors' homes and businesses from California to Germany. He's often at work in his studio in Boston's South End. It's my pleasure to say hello to Paul Padula. Hello, Paul Padula. Hi, Liz. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you. It's been a while. I think your story is really fascinating because we are always trying to do different things. And I think creatives often take left and right turns in their career. We met each other because you're a copywriter. Right. (laughs) And so we have worked together on commercials or narrations. You came to art sort of as a profession rather later in life, right? Absolutely. Um, It was a surprise. I had no idea that it was going to become such a big thing. I thought maybe it would be a little hobby, but it kind of took off a lot quicker than I thought. Did you draw or paint as a kid? Was that something that was a passion for you? I did. Um, When I was a kid, I used to draw a lot. And not only did I draw, but I would even draw at times when I probably shouldn't have, like in class. And I would you know, if I was bored in the class, I would draw in my marginal notes. And, um, you know, I just, I, I had, I had to, I had to draw. It was just a thing. Yeah, I think really true artists are compelled to do what they do. They don't deal with deadlines. They don't deal with any of that. They just, it's a uh, true love. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the time I didn't really think much of it and I, I don't know why I didn't think much of it, because I I probably just never really considered it as something to pursue as a career. But uh, finally, I woke up, you know, in 2006, and I had the strong urge to paint, and and I did. You make it sound so easy. Like, I woke up one day, and I painted, (laughs) and then I was successful. And I I do want to make a note. You did take some classes to hone your skills. I did. Um, I took some classes at uh, a funky sort of little art school in Somerville, Massachusetts. And uh, it's it's the School of Painting uh, with Catherine Martin Widmer. She's an artist. And um, she also sort of specializes in acrylic painting, which is my medium. And I, I was looking for an acrylic class uh, because 
I really felt like my style would be more uh, conducive to acrylic. Um, I because I have an advertising background. Um, I like bold things. I like uh, simple things, and acrylic paint just seemed like the right uh, medium. So uh, I chose a class for for that reason too. How many years did you go to art school? Uh, <laughs> more like how many months? Uh, I guess six months. I, I really have no pedigree in art school. Um, I have a college degree in uh, English, and I did not do any painting when I was in college. And my classes that I started in 2006 were basically from January to June of that year. There are so many artistic people out there who spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on their art education now who are just in a deep depression. Aside from those six months, you really don't have formal training in art. I don't. Um, I, For the most part, I'm self-taught. And it's interesting. Um, a lot of people tell me that that's worked in my favor. Yeah. Tell me why that is. Because I notice in, in certain creative endeavor. Sometimes it's good not to have that background. Why? You know, I don't know if, if there's a if there's an answer to that 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 sit, that fits everybody, but I had a couple of early experiences that that sort of taught me that I was on the right path. One of them, um, when I was first accepted into the juried program at South End Open Studios in Boston, I didn't know what to do as far as showing my work and I, I thought maybe it would be good for me to to take a student with me. And I, I reached out to uh, some students at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts. And I, I had a student come uh, in, into, the, uh, into the jury program with me. And he basically just acted as an assistant. And he liked my work a lot. And he kept looking at it. And he was saying to me, Paul, don't go to art school. They're not, they're not going to teach you how to paint this way. You, you just, you're doing this and this is coming right out of you. And just you know, just do it. I sort of filed that advice somewhere. And then, you know, a couple of years later, um, when the Tao Water Gallery asked me to show in their gallery, they came into my studio and said the exact same thing. They said, you can't tell me you went to school to learn this. I love what you're doing. And I really want you to show in my gallery. So I guess that's the answer. So how does one get, I don't know, quote unquote, discovered as an artist, because we know that nobody's like looking for the next great writer or artist, yeah. <laughs> sculptor. How does that happen? You know, I think some of it's luck and some of it's just being in the right place at the right time. And in my case also, I my work is somewhat unusual and I think it just got noticed. So, you know, I, I was fortunate when I started showing my work I was attracting galleries and I was attracting press early on. And it seems like they just happened to fall into my space and they saw what I was doing and got interested in it. And that's the way it's worked all along for me. Um, I'm now represented by eight galleries across the country and in no case did I ever solicit them. They all found me. That is an incredible story because most people are sending out letters. There's this big social media presence, and that makes it even more remarkable because a lot of a lot of makers are on Instagram or in some form of social media promoting their work. 
And right. you have not done that. Well, social media is definitely a big part of my um, my life. So I do have my own Instagram page. I do have my own uh, Facebook page. And some people did notice me on social media. And also um, website. My website was attracting a lot of people. And in addition to my own website, I was on the United South End Artists website and the SOA Artists Guild website. So there's been a fair amount of online presence that's contributed to this as well. True, but you did not start out with that. I mean, yeah. you were kind of you're kind of like pre big social media in yeah. like 2008, 2009 that that period. Right, and social media was you know was still it wasn't as big as it is now, but it was still it was still a thing at the time. Um, more, more websites, I'd say. Um, I know that my first big break came when when Serena and Lily took me on as um, as one of their artists in their art collection. And that happened because uh, they had an art consultant who was scouting for them. And that art consultant was looking at different websites and different artists around the country. And she claims that she stumbled upon my work at the United South End Artists website. Mm. And when then she referred she asked, she got in touch with me and asked me if she could show my work to Serena and Lily. And I said, sure. So I sent her some JPEGs and she, she did uh, show my work to them and they accepted me. So that was, that was a big break for me because all of a sudden I had national uh, recognition. Right. And that's on a mass production level, as much as Serena and Lily can be called mass production because <laughs> I mean, it's very upmarket yes. items. So when you sell to somebody like when you sell to Serena and Lily, are you selling glissé? Are you selling prints? How are you, how are you selling your art? Or is are they original works? Only original works. Um, they, Serena and Lily uh, and I have an arrangement where I I sell only original works through them, and um, it's mostly online. So it's great because it's twenty four seven exposure for me. Mm-hmm. I have been in uh, a couple of their retail stores. Uh, I started with them in 2013, which was before they had any retail stores. And then they opened their first one in San Francisco. And interestingly enough, when when they got some press about that uh, about that store opening, the writer of that uh, press featured my art just by coincidence. They just they were looking at some of the art that Serena and Lily was uh, showing and picked one of my pieces out. And so that was another boost. And then uh, Serena and Lily asked if I could, if I could send some actual work for their stores too. So I have shown in their Hampton, uh, New York store and I, and I've shown in their, their new uh, Del Mar, San Diego, California store. Paul, that's so remarkable. You you couldn't make this stuff up. The way <laughs> this you know art career, the trajectory of it has unfolded. It's, it's to me, it's just mind boggling. When you are producing for retail and you're you're doing original works, mm-hmm. is there a lot of pressure to just like pump it out? Do you feel like you're really in a flow and can get things going? How does that work? Because it feels overwhelming. Um. The only pressure I've felt maybe is that perhaps I've taken on too many galleries, but even that hasn't been a very big pressure. I just do what I, I just approach every piece the way I would normally paint. And that is 
Whatever's coming out of me, I will paint. Serena and Lily and none of the galleries that represent me have ever pressured me to paint anything in particular. Um, I know in my mind that there's a certain style that Serena and Lily likes. I know that there's a certain style that the Sharon Weiss Gallery in Columbus, Ohio likes. And so I'll gear any work I send to them that way. Um, my Cape Cod Gallery, the A.M. Zender Gallery, they have a certain style that I know they like. And so, you know, it, it works that way. It's more, they're all my decisions, but I kind of know the personality of all those galleries too. So you have a really great instinct for retail and tailoring or, you know, or people's tastes. You know how to please an audience or please whatever tastemakers you're working with. Yeah, I think that mostly I know how to please myself. And that's, and that's, and I think that's really key to it because, you know, I do have artist friends who, who say, who come into my studio and they'll say to me, I need to paint something that's going to sell. And I immediately look at them and I'll say, hmm, no, get those thoughts out of your head because you need to paint something that you have passion for. When you have passion for that work, it's going to show and other people are going to notice that and it's going to bring out the passion in them too. So if you have a motive to sell something, it's just not going to be um, something that's desirable in the work. It's not, there's going to be no soul to it. There won't be any passion. Well, you know, there's always this trope of the starving artist and probably a belief, oh, if I do what I want to do, (laughs) nobody's going to want to buy it, you know, and I'm not sure whether that's like a self-deprecatory thing or, you know, what, what is at the root of that? Uh, You know, we are both writers and so much of what people write. And I, I see people changing perfectly good short stories or novels to be more marketable. Yeah. It takes the life out of whatever they're writing. It does. It's, it can be really self-defeating. I, I really, that's my biggest, uh, the biggest thing I preach with, uh, other artist friends is to just continue to paint what you have passion for. It's the only way. And in, in my case, I'm lucky that what I have passion for does seem to be marketable. So it is possible, I suppose, to have passion for something that no one's going to want to buy. But in my case, they, they are married. So that's, that helps. You have such a distinctive style and there is a real strong point of view about what you do. And there are themes that keep coming up, the open road, you know, sometimes it's a lonely highway, you know, up against, uh, you know, it's, it's asphalt up against beautiful blue skies or, you know, a row of beach houses, you know, near the sea. Do you see certain themes that you really do like to work with and you don't want to, go off course with that? Do you see what you do evolving? Well, you mentioned the sky, Liz, and I have to tell you, when I was a kid, and I mean a really young kid, like four or five years old, I would lay down on the grass and look up at the sky, and I was completely fascinated by it. And I couldn't, you know, I could just lay there all, all afternoon and look at the sky. And that, that passion never left me. So when I when you see a lot of sky in some of my paintings, there's good reason for that. It's it's just it's in me. A really beautiful painting, any type of art, there's always a story underneath it. 
when you are painting something, do you come up with the narrative in your head? What are you doing? What What is inspiring you as you're putting that brush to the canvas? There are times when I know exactly what I'm going to paint before I go into the studio. So if I have an idea that I want to paint, say, a cottage on the beach by the by the water, which a lot of my work is like that, I'll I'll just it'll just come out of me and I'll do it. However, there's many times when I don't know what I'm going to paint and I go into my studio and I just kind of let it flow. And sometimes it surprises me. You know, I'll end up with a painting that will be something that I never expected I would do. So it, it does vary. So as writers, we can get writer's block. I don't know whether you've ever experienced that. I know I have. Is there anything that's similar to that in, in the you know visual artist world? As a there painter, do you ever get painter's block? There is definitely painter's block or artist block. Um, I am very fortunate that I haven't experienced it. However, it, it is certainly a phenomenon. I, if I go into my studio one day and, and I start to paint and you know, things are coming out okay, but they're, I'm not really too psyched. I'll just leave. I'll go to the gym. I'll go home and have lunch or whatever. And then I'll come back. And maybe when I come back in two hours later, I'm fine. It's any kind of, uh, any kind of block I've ever experienced has been very, very temporary. What do you attribute that to? I don't know. I think it's because I absolutely love this stuff. (laughs) I, 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 I love to paint. I love, uh, I love architecture. I love um, the sky and I love beaches and, you know, figures have, have made their way into my work as well. And what fascinated me with that was that I never thought I could do them. And then I found that I was really enjoying them. So I'm not afraid to try new things. And who knows what will come, come to my head tomorrow. Yeah, I, I like to call it, you know, I'm, I'm talking to my imaginary friends. Yeah. <laughs> And there's there's a lot of truth to that. How many times have you caught yourself actually, you know, literally talking to those imaginary friends and saying, oh, good, I'm glad no one else is here to hear this? Oh, very often. Not as often as I talk to my dog, but it it, it happens (laughs) quite a bit. So it doesn't sound like you have some of the, you know, self-doubt or self-sabotage that many creatives get. What what is it about your makeup? Because you are both humble, but also very confident in the work that you do. Yeah, that, that's an interesting combination. I think you're probably right about that. Um, I think I just try and stay true to what is really coming out of me. I don't try and force anything. I've literally said to myself at times, Paul, are you painting? I hope not, because... If you're painting, you just you got to stop because you're you have to let the painting happen. Don't try and paint it in any sort of overt way. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but with your ego, you can interrupt the flow of your work if you're not tuned into sort of the universe. And if you just try and do it on your own without being in the flow, it's not going to be the same. Paul, that is both simple and profound, and I think absolutely true. Uh, A theater teacher I had once said, you know, my ego is going to ruin every good thing (laughs) in my life. And and I think it's true. We can really let our ego get ahead of us. And then we're already outside of our own experience as we're trying to have the experience. Yes. Yeah. There's a a certain flow that comes from a, a larger place than ourselves. And we as individuals can interrupt that flow if we want to and 
it's never a good thing if we do. Absolutely. I think this is something I thought you said, but maybe not. And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm an artist without geography. Ah, yes. That part is definitely true. In fact, this comes up all the time because my work tends to be half memory, half imagination. And I'm certainly influenced by places like Cape Cod, Maine, California to an extent, um, even, you know, some places in Europe. Um, but my work is some, somewhat universal in its, in, in its lack of, it's, it has a lack of geography. I can show a painting on Cape Cod and everybody that's there will say, oh, this is Cape Cod. I, I, I love this painting because it's Cape Cod. I can show the same painting in Saugatuck, Michigan, which is a beach town. I, I do show at a gallery called Saugatuck Art Traders. And they'll say, oh, this is Saugatuck. It's, I, I, you know, I, I recognize it as Saugatuck. Or, you know, in California, they'll, they'll say something similar. I think that my work is, it evokes certain places that are familiar to people. They are not necessarily real places. Occasionally they are, but often they're not. And so by evoking those those um, passions, if you will, both in myself and in viewers of my work, they see what they want to see. And whatever they see is valid. Yeah. And, it, you know, something can evoke an emotion within us that we can't even explain. It just comes up. And that's that's when I really connect with a piece of art. I saw something I was traveling in the Southwest and saw this white clobbered house, this really modest little older home with one of those plastic white uh, chairs that you see in the the summertime that they might have in some of those seaside restaurants. And there was snow on the ground and just this little chair. And I burst into tears because there was something so desolate, the sense of yearning about all those layers of white in that one lonely little chair that, you know, somebody was there. It evoked something in you that was deep, and that's wonderful. I get that all the time in my studio. I even got it yesterday. Um, somebody came into my studio. We're open on Sundays at 450 Harrison Ave in Boston, and um, and someone came in and said, "All of my, all of your work is bringing out different emotions in me. It's very powerful." And I was really moved by it. We had a little chat about it. It is because it does feel personal, and yet there are these really vibrant blues and greens. And so when you see that little patch of, or that big patch of sky, and then you see that asphalt going through it, or you see that row of, you know, cute little beach houses, there's something that uh, produces a sense of longing. Yeah. And a lot of times it is, uh, it's, it's memories that people have. Um, Sometimes they're distant memories. Um, But there are places that, that are, they're fond in their minds. And those places could be, you know, anywhere. I get, you know, during COVID, we haven't had as many European visitors, but generally speaking, we get a lot of European visitors in uh, uh, my studio building. And they'll come into my space and say, oh, I, I, those cottages are just like, you know, such and such a beach that I know in um, the Netherlands or in France. And, you know, it, and it has a very personal uh, meaning for them. And there's no reason why it's it can't be valid, because for the most part, those cottages aren't real. One of the great things about art, and I, I will mention that your studio in the South End is fantastic. And the South End is a great hub for artists of all types, for, for makers of all types, and that you are at 
the open studios at the South End the first Friday of every month, which is nice because you were kind of closed down with those for the better part of a year and a half. Yeah, well, what happened was um, we were actually we in our building, we were only closed um, from March until June of 2020. Um, in June of 2020, we opened up again on Sundays and we got crowded right away. In fact, the first day I was there, I saw the painting. It was it was amazing. It was like people were starving for art. I think they were just home all the time and they needed to look at their walls all the all day and they just really wanted new art for their homes. Um, but then the first Fridays began starting in August of, of last year. So so yeah, but um, we we really did we really had a pent up demand, I believe. Right. And it's it's not only that, it's the, you know, whereas that one painting, that one statue, even a piece of textile can bring up all types of feelings, getting into the room with other people. It's like going to the movies or theater. You have that collective experience of all seeing something together at the same time, whatever thoughts or feelings, emotions that rise to the surface are very personal. But it is that collective experience that I think only being in a room with a, a piece of art, something beautiful can bring. Yeah, I, I love the experience of, of speaking with people um, about my work um, in the studio setting. And I have, I really do have the ability of to talk about, about a painting as though I didn't even paint it, you know, just, you know, it, I can look at it and see something and they can look at it and see something else. And um, we can have a great conversation as though I wasn't even the artist. I would love people to experience because this is audio only. And I would love to put a couple of examples up on the website for Embark. Would you be okay with that? I would love that. Yes. There's something very magical about what you do. And without sounding too corny, life affirming. Ah, I appreciate that. That's a nice, that's a very nice adjective. It is true. If people wanted to connect or see more of what you do, how do they do that, Paul? So they can go to paulpadula.com and they can come to my studio, 450 Harrison Ave, Boston, uh, Studio 314. And we are open, like you mentioned, uh, every first Friday of the month from 5 to 9 p.m. And I'm there almost every Sunday of the, of the year, uh, unless I'm out of town, which is, you know, sometimes I am out of town. But if I'm in Boston, I am in my studio from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m every Sunday. The labors of love. Yeah. And th- and that's that's just for exhibition. That's, I'm not there painting at that time. Just I'm just there, you know, to, to show work. And go and take a look at those white walls covered with all these vibrant colors or get a chance at paulpadula.com, P-E-D-U-L-L-A. Yes. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope we can do it again. Yeah, I hope we can too, Liz. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I appreciate you coming by. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thank you. That's Paul Padula, debunking the trope of the starving artist. If you like what you hear on Embark, share this episode with a friend and please subscribe. Get in touch with a story idea or your comments at Liz at EmbarkThePodcast.com. Next week, Maria Olson, author of 50 After 50, the story of her big adventure in her 50th year. Maria's an attorney, writer, marketer, and way too many hyphenates to list here. Catch our conversation next week. In the meantime, I'm Liz Solar. Thanks for listening.